So say you have a long-lived quantum computer that is attached to 3D printers, massive 3D printers on the far side of the moon, okay? And say you have an astronomer in the 22nd century who detects a comet aimed at Earth, and it's going to hit in like a month. There's not enough time to build a rocket to go and destroy that comet. But he can send a command to the quantum computer 20 years in the past to print out a rocket to go and intercept that comet at the coordinates at which he's detected it. And and that would enable, you know, enable you to destroy that comet. I mean, that that's the kind of scenario that we're talking about with, I think, what is sort of the transitional technology that will lead ultimately to actual time travel. It's this sort of informational time travel where you're using a quantum computer to send information into the past that enables you to better meet a challenge in your future. You see, the way I put it in the new book is, is planting seeds in the past for a better tomorrow. Greetings, future fossils. Welcome to episode 171 of the podcast that explores our place in time. And wow, is this week's episode perfectly that. I really can't think of anyone better than Eric Wargo to talk with about the consequences of a paradigm shift in our understanding of time. Specifically, what happens when we break through the taboo that time flows in one direction and start seriously entertaining the possibility that we are informed, influenced in some way by the future, or that all moments occur simultaneously and the subjective passage of time is a kind of Doppler-like artifact of our relationship to information. In episode 117, we went into deep detail about the science in his first book, Time Loops, his second book, Precognitive Dreamwork and the Long Self, anchors this conversation in something much more personal and widely accessible, namely teaching people how to identify tracers of their own precognitive faculties in the records of their dreams. So, as a first for the Future Fossils Book Club, I invited Eric to join us for a discussion about his work, and so what follows is an unusual Future Fossils episode, although one I think I might try to reproduce in the future, one in which Patreon supporters join me for a live call with the author of a book I feel merits deeper discussion. Incidentally, the audio in this episode is a little squiggly, not as great as I would like, but it's a Zoom call. What are you going to do? I think the content more than makes up for it. Speaking of which, now is a great time to thank everybody that's joined on with the Future Fossils Patreon recently. Those of you who have listened to the show for a while know that there is no way I could make time for the extensive research and production I invest in every single episode without listener support. And as much as I may frame this show as an offering to the unborn archaeologists I imagine will one day dig up the data diamond on the moon, the longer I engage in the yoga of all of the invisible work that goes into making this the most 
quality program I possibly can for you, the more I realize it really is for you, my living audience, and the people in your lives for whom you're listening to these conversations shifts things, subtly or not so subtly, in their conversations with you, and so on. An expanding wave of cultural processing of those deep questions that haunt our transitional age. So, special thanks to new patrons this week. Elizabeth von der Ahe, Brandon Carlson, Chad Eveslage, Mariantonia Miscelli, Rene DePaula Jr., Alex Hote, and Agata Adolchik. Thank you, and thanks to the other people that continue to support this show through the rather turbulent churn I experience, as it seems most of the people who appreciate the show are, like myself, living out on the edge, where there is often more passion for deep discussion than there is financial recompense. And just a heads up that the ongoing bi-weekly patrons-only exclusive Future Fossils series continues with original essays, mailbag episodes, etc. So hop on, dear listener, and help me keep the weird alive. And with that, here is Eric Wargo back on the show for a delightfully palindromic episode, which is a fun little inversion of his first appearance, 171 and 117. I didn't realize that until I was recording this intro. Make of it what you will. Talking about the epistemic shift it's going to take for us to become a time-faring species. I promise that if you actually give this your full attention, it will change the way you think about things, and then we will want to hear you reflect on all of that in the Future Fossils Discord, which you can find in the show notes, along with all of the books we discuss and plenty of other good stuff. Thank you for listening. Thanks, everybody, who has been rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts. It is hugely helpful. And thanks, everybody, for doing the good work of keeping the edge of the known and knowable peopled with brave, intelligent, and creative folks such as yourself. Enjoy and be well. Eric, thanks so much for, for joining this. The first time we've had it, the author on for a book club conversation. I think that it's going to go really well. Awesome. Glad to be here. So today we are discussing this book, Precognitive Dreamwork and the Long Self, which prominently features a very mysterious object that I suspect was kind of planted, but we can get into that later. I think we might've brought that up the first time we spoke, but anyway, I would like to just start by having you explain a little bit about the difference between this book and time loops and why this one. Yeah, let's just start there. Yeah, well, this book was actually not planned and it's certainly not part of, it wasn't part of my original trajectory. I mean, I really actually had a trilogy or quadrilogy of books that I wanted to write and time loops was the first one. And the next one was going to be the book on precognition and creativity that I'm 
still slowly trying to work on. But after after Time Loops came out, I mean, I start, you know, Time Loops is a kind of heavy, heavy read. And, uh, and I think, unfortunately, I think I lose a lot of readers in the first quarter or first half of the book because it's pretty tense. And it actually, it doesn't really get to the interesting stuff, <laughs> the stuff that I find most interesting until like the second half of the book. So, yeah, I sort of bit off probably more than I should have tried to chew in a single volume. But anyway, after the book came out, I was, you know, I started being inundated with emails from readers sharing their dream stories. I mean, there wasn't a lot, you know, dreams crop up again and again in time loops, and there's a chapter sort of devoted to them, but uh, it wasn't sort of the main topic. And, well, I quickly realized, and people at presentations, I would give a lecture and people would come up to me afterwards sharing their dream stories. And I realized, okay, there's a need for an accessible book on precognitive dreams. And it's actually, a lot of books have been written about precognition and premonitions and even some books on precognitive dreaming, but none are really very good, frankly, and they're not informed by a coherent theory of precognition. And uh, I realized, well, there's a, there's there's a need here and um, a, a market for a book on precognition, uh, precognitive dreaming. And honestly, I, I I was excited to write it because one of the things I'd kind of left out of time loops was my own experiences. You know, I wanted time loops to be totally you know full of evidence that scientists, skeptics would take seriously. And when you start talking about your own anecdotal experiences, that just immediately turns off, you know, a big segment of the people I'm trying to reach and, if not convince, open their minds with the arguments I'm making. So I left all that stuff out of time loops for the most part, except for one experience in the epilogue or whatever. But anyway, so this was an opportunity for me to kind of tell my own story about my progress from skepticism toward (laughs) acceptance of the reality of precognition and realization that, hey, I've always had these experiences. I've swept them under the rug or reinterpreted them in other ways or just ignored them. And I think that's true of many, many people. And I was discovering that it was true of some of my readers who were going, holy crap, I've been having these experiences and yet I've been, I've been, Interpreting them in light of, you know, the big one is Carl Jung, synchronicity, you know, it's like, I just kind of like, okay, that's a, that's synchronistic, the universe is kind of giving me the thumbs up or something like that. But it's, that's not a very useful, helpful theory, ultimately. So it was very validating uh, to get all these experiences that were a lot like mine, you know, people who were on the brink of understanding or accepting the reality of time loops. But there, they, it hadn't been quite articulated for them. And so I think my, my first book did that for a lot of readers. But again, it was a challenging book that tackles a lot of topics and goes deep into the theory and the mechanistic hypotheses about how it might work and so forth like that. And I realized, well, there's a need for a, of a book that's, that's shorter, more personal, and more focused on dreams and dream interpretation. Unfortunately, that was a topic that I've always been interested in. I mean, for for decades, I've been, you know, I've read books on dreams, dream interpretation. I Some of my professors in grad school were psychoanalysts. And so I, I was sort of steeped in that for a long time. So that's the origin of the new book. And it kind of derailed my larger project uh, for about a year while I was working on it. Couldn't work on the other things that are sort of more gripping to me. 
so that's the that's the origins of it or that's the conventional narrative expedience origin of it right because there's that's the you know like uh, terence mckenna says you know it's like storytellers uh we have to give the story a beginning a middle and an end yes. right but like to yes your, of course <laughs> and, yes of course and i'm and i'm totally open to the idea that any any day some revelation might come to me or some interaction with you or with 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 someone that will will go oh my god this is what retro caused me to write that book <laughs> three years earlier and it, these kinds of experiences um these sort of mega time loop looping experiences are the kinds of things that readers have shared with me and that there's a couple of them in the in the new book um that are really mind-blowing i think you know i'm realizing that you know, there's one story in the book about a friend and sort of colleague of mine, Toby, who was essentially having precognitive dreams related to my book, Time Loops, 30 years beforehand. But it's prompted a very deep reassessment of both of our biographies. I mean, she's, for her, her biography is now a rabbit hole of of precognitive connections and and so forth, which she is constantly mapping out and exploring via active dream, active imagination and dream work and so on. And the same, I, in my own way, I'm doing the same kind of reassessment of my own biography and realizing that not only, you know, you know, her sort of discovery about this retro caused my interest in this topic and sort of set me on a certain path. And these are the kinds of discoveries that, lie in wait for anyone who embarks on this path of precognitive dream work. And that's sort of, I encompass it with the sort of rubric of the long self. Uh, we, you know, we are really these four-dimensional space-time worms, essentially uh, worms in the best sense, uh, snaking through the, the, the glass block of Minkowski space-time. Even if we think of our consciousness as sort of this little narrow cursor scrolling across that timeline, in fact, the evidence, I think, suggests that we are really thinking with our whole life. It's focused on the now, the present moment, but there are all kinds of experiences which which really broaden that cursor, that window, and lots of experiences like dreams that are really wormholes connecting two different points in our life. I hope that answered whatever question you asked a few minutes ago. Yeah. Well, okay. So, you know, a couple things stick out in there that lead us into something I wanted to open up for discussion here, which is that, you know, you're talking about in writing the first book, it being a matter of trying to convince people and therefore leaving out the more personal narrative. But you make a point in that book, as well as this one, that uh, one of the key features is that you had to be there piece of it, which is that whatever information we're getting about the future, our brains are only interpreting in light of the pieces that we have available to us. You know, you think about evolutionary function and how every adaptation is what Stephen Jay Gould and Elizabeth Verba called an, an exaptation. Exaptation, yeah. Yeah, which mm -hmm. is, you know, the, the reappropriate or the, the appropriation of something that exists for a new function. And so there's this sense in which we are only capable of interpreting our precognitive content in light. Of, and you give all sorts of great examples like uh, Vladimir Nabokov 
seeing the future of the sale of Lolita to, to Kubrick and interpreting it in terms of like his childhood in Russia, like circus mm-hmm. people instead of like Hollywood. And then also not to totally spoil the party, but this makes a whole lot of sense in terms of the semiotic slippiness of the UFO mm-hmm. phenomenon and the fact that we yeah. keep interpreting the UFO phenomenon through whatever sort of dominant metaphor possesses a given age you know, that it's now it's this particular yeah. technological metaphor, which if Stuart Davis were on the call, you know, Stuart, I love his insistence that we're missing the point by focusing on the craft with the UFO phenomenon and that we should be asking about the intention and the beings rather than just like the details of the technology. You know, it's it's a presentist projection yeah. of our own weird preoccupation with gear. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this point about Hebbian learning is really interesting. And I'd love to pick your brain about this and then invite other people again at any point. Oh, good. Yeah. Tell Jay, tell Stuart to get in here right now. <laughs> he's, he's got the zoom link already. Uh, but I don't know if we talked about this the last time we spoke, but I remember Adi Livnot of Haifa University in Israel has a paper called uh, simplification. Let's see here. I'll, I'll pull it up and share it in the, the notes here. Simplification, innateness, and the absorption of meaning from context, how novelty arises from gradual network evolution. He's talking about the way that he can kind of restore some of the thinking around Lamarckian evolution as gene regulatory networks are expressed in complex ways because of the interaction between the organism and its environment, that genes that are expressed together end up being more likely to fuse into a hmm. single gene. And he, he compares huh. to the, the way learning. that heavy and learning yeah. and the way that neurons that fire together end up, you know, fusing into these networks. And so he's saying that's is, you know, there's something more than just an epigenetic angle to the idea that behavior can be encoded in the genome. And that, mm-hmm. that touches on one of the things that I'd like to do with this call is, is kind of stretch beyond just the, the purely biographical dimension of this and into some of the other stuff mm-hmm. that you've you've written about the role of this kind of time binding phenomenon in what we would think of as more you know, sort of primitive or simpler biological yeah. systems or or just physical systems. So yeah, I don't know. Well, what you're I mean, what you're describing right now, you know, I and this is pure spe- honestly, this is pure speculation, but it's the kind of speculation that just feels right, <laughs> and that I think you know that that I'm. I, I I just feel like something like this is going to turn out to be true. And it's that DNA, like so many other molecular systems in our biology, uh, is going to turn out to be a quantum computer, or it's going to ha- turn out to have quantum computing properties. And if that's the case, you know, the exciting dimension of quantum computing that I talk about in my books is that you can theoretically, with a quantum computer, send information back in time or have an input that follows an output. So the idea, and I speculate about this a little bit in in the paper that I sent you by email, it's not published yet, you know, could DNA be essentially a computer system that is being programmed by future outcomes, uh, which would be a kind of, you know, spin on Lamarck and like a, a different way of thinking about epigenetics or a different way of thinking about sort of Lamarckian evolution. That's not epigenetic. That's genetic utilizing a a genetic DNA quantum computer. And again, 
I have no actual evidence for this, but it feels right. And so I'm going to, I'm going to keep looking. I'm going to keep reading the literature for hints that this is, this is possibly the case. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Oh, well, first of all, hi, Stuart. Thanks for joining. And, uh, yeah, great. And then also, yeah, we're to that point. This gets to the question that I keep chewing on when I'm, I'm considering your work, which is about the subjective notion of an arrow of time, you know, like in Liv Knott's model of this sort of genetic learning it's still the case that even at the genetic level, these molecules are basically seeking a maximal entropy production or the, you know, local ener- mm-hmm. uh, entropy yeah, right. reduction, which, you know, in like a Carl Friston free energy principle is about, you know, uncertainty reduction. And so there's this thing I've been chewing on that has to do with, okay, well, if there is a, a Minkowski block universe model, why is it that we persist in experiencing it as going in one way? Well, I I have a couple answers to that. I mean, one is that we just don't know it. I mean, we're not going to solve this problem. Where we right now in the 21st century are not going to solve this problem. And this goes along with the whole question of consciousness. As you probably know, I'm not interested in, in the whole question of consciousness and what is consciousness and how are we going to explain consciousness. First of all, the term is so ill-defined. Everyone means something different by it. There's so many assumptions flying around. And then to think with our present scientific tools, we are, you know, we're able to somehow explain it at this point in our understanding of the brain, for instance, you know, which is no, I mean, we don't, we, we know so little about the brain, honestly, at this point. You know, that if it is a brain-based phenomenon, then we're not ready to explain it. But then if it isn't, then we, we still don't know enough about the brain to eliminate that possibility that it's not a brain-based phenomenon. So there's no hope of answering these questions. So it's just, a, it feels like game playing to me um, when philosophers discuss this and neuroscientists discuss this and people give TED Talks about it. I mean, I'm just, I'm so sick of the question, honestly. You know, as I've said in my books, my what I do like about the search for consciousness in the brain is that serendipitously it's producing evidence for exactly what I'm interested in, which is precognition. And I think that microtubules are probably the answer, but not because they're the substrate of consciousness somehow. I forget what I was starting to say though. And I forget, <laughs> can you, re- can well, you just, remind just, me of, you your, know, of yeah, your question? Yeah, that um, I, I would think of like almost like a Doppler shift type of thing or a pol- like a polarization, which Philip K. Dick talks about also in, in his work, you know, the idea that even if, you know, that all of the, these moments are simultaneous, there's still, oh. a, there's still a gradient, a past right. to future gradient. Right. I remember what I was going to, yeah. I remember what I was going to say. I, clearly, you know, we are not in a position to, to, to know why our consciousness is focused on a single moment, but a, it's not entirely focused on a single moment. I mean, we experiences like dreams, experiences like uh, precognitive visions, hallucinations, so on and so forth, suggest that actually multiple moments in our timeline can be superimposed. And that's important. Uh, two, even if there's a block universe and so on, that doesn't mean that there is not some sort of asymmetry that is causing us to experience time as going in a in one direction, even if it's not really. So there are all kinds of reasons why potentially we could experience things going one way. I mean, if, as is true, context is needed to interpret uh, an experience or a memory, this is, goes back to the question of source monitoring, which I keep coming back to in my books because it's so important and I think people are missing it. But source monitoring is crucial. You know, the ability to source monitor our memories 
exceeds our mem- our ability to source monitor our premories, okay, our memories of things future. And that right there could be an explanation for why at any given moment in our block universe timeline, we experience ourselves as having a past that we know about and that, that we're moving towards a future that we don't know about. So we would always experience things that way if there's that imbalance in the ability to source and monitor information for our future. So I think I keep coming back to that. At least for now, I think that's a good placeholder explanation for why we experience time flowing in one direction. I mean, not to uh, place too much credit for this film's depiction of physics, but, you know, like Tenet seemed like, <laughs> I don't know, did you see that one? I I wrote about it, but I didn't see it. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I, I criticized the film based on its trailers, and then and then I still haven't gotten around to see it. I have a new baby, and it's like it's like trying to watch oh. a movie is impossible. So, mm-hmm. yes. you know, you know about that. Oh, certainly. Um, yeah, but yeah. The, you know, the notion that basically their their version of time travel in the film is the local reversal of like the entropy function of a character. So they still have this experience of like their own, that kind of links to some of the other stuff that you've sent me that you're working on regarding time travel and the way that even time travelers do to what's the guy's name? Nabokov, the Um, Russian Igor. uh, I marked that page. Yeah. Novikov. 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 Yes. Yeah. The self-consistent universe that all time-like curves are closed. And so there's no, Mm -hmm. there's no possibility of a, of a time travel grandfather paradox type situation, because whatever you do in the past just sort of closes the causal loop that results in you going back through time. Yeah. The easier way to think about that is you can influence the past and we're all, and according to the time loops theory, we're always influencing the past. That's what a a time loop is a closed time-like curve. You cannot change the past from what it was, which is an incoherent statement anyway. You will always find, the time traveler will always find that whatever they did in the past was already part of their backstory. Okay. And this eliminates grandfather paradoxes if you think about it, because we, we habitually, because of science fiction, stories we habitually think about this kind of narrative in which a time traveler suddenly decides to change the past or goes you know suddenly decides to change history and goes steps into a time machine but there's no there's no timeline in which that would be the case you see i mean there's no timeline in which a time traveler would have the idea of changing the past um because if they did, it wouldn't exist. So the only timelines where there are time travelers who are going into their, visiting their own histories, which is a very limited portion of past time anyway, but the only time travelers who are going to revisit their own histories are those who were already visited by their future selves and are acting consistently within that narrative. So this is another book that I'm working on. I sent you a sort of condensed version of it. A lot of the barriers, honestly, to time travel, I believe, are conceptual barriers that we've inherited from science fiction. Oddly enough, the science fiction writers tend to be not very good at thinking about this stuff. And it's actually the same is true of physicists. The, the best physicist, Stephen Hawking, in a sort of, you know, I think it was a Guardian article, sort of talking about time travel and how fun it is to think about, but it's really impossible because X, Y, and Z. And his reasons are all the same errors that every, that everyone commits when thinking about time travel. It's very hard to think about retrocausation, time travel in any form. And Stephen Hawking, the, the, the great mind, commits the same fallacies 
that most people do and that a lot of science fiction writers have done. Same is true of uh, Michio Kaku. I mean, in, his, in, in one of his books, I mean, he lists a lot of paradoxes that are supposedly caused by time travel that are in fact not paradoxes. They're tautologies. <laughs> Tautology is different from paradox and tautology rules a time travel universe. And that's, again, that's all we mean by a, a time loop. Can uh, I ask a question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, what's up, Eric? Nice hey. to have you. Thanks. I was listening to your podcast with Gordon White on Rune Soup uh, mm -hmm. around all this. And one thing that stuck out to me was he was pushing back on the block universe yeah. thing a bit. Um, and he sort of landed on, well, I agree that free will is garbage, but there's still agency was something he brought out. So that there's some there's some ground where we're at least experiencing agency or maybe we're still whoever, whatever we, whatever little bubble we draw around this process to, to say is we have some influence, but we're not free from other prior causes. And that, well, that's free... not something that comes up when we're talking about all this. Yeah. Okay. Well, free will is the other big hang up that we, if we're going to actually move into a future where we're time faring, where we're time travelers, we have to stop getting hung up on this idea of free will because it too, it's a conceptual blockade, you know, it's, and that's not to say there isn't free will, but free will is part of the block universe. So I experience freely, my freely willed action to, you know, lift my water glass right now, all free will means to people who are really hung up on it. If you drill down, if you sort of, you know, really get to the bottom of it, all free will means is that they don't like the idea that if you replayed the universe from the start, well, all the same initial conditions, you would make that same exact decision again. And that's what no free will means in a block universe, that in fact, history will always be the same. And somehow that feels like a limitation on our freedom. That somehow feels constraining. But the point is, we wouldn't have the mentality that this was different from something else or, that, or not different from some other history. That our consciousness, our, our awareness is part of that same block universe. And incidentally, this is one reading, one possible reading of Nietzsche's famous eternal recurrence of the same. The idea that and for him, it was a blissful realization. And for me, it's a blissful realization, too, <laughs> that if you replayed the universe, everything will happen exactly as it did uh, before. So I think that I always ask people to kind of take that idea of free will and haul all the questions around free will and just set it over here on a shelf and look at the problem without worrying about that. Because, you know, no one is is saying that you aren't as free as you feel. I mean, you're, we're all free. You know, we're acting freely. But from a point of view, five seconds from now, my actions right now are set in stone. They're part of, of history and they're not alterable. And, there's, and relativistic physics shows that for, for any given, you know, freely willed act in the present, there is a point of view from which it's already in the past. So we have to accommodate our self understanding and experience of uncertainty. Freedom really, really means uncertainty. I don't know what's going to happen in a moment. I don't know for sure what I'm going to do one second from now. That has to be included within the block universe. Our experience is part of the block universe. So I don't know. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> I, I just found it interesting that he, he preferred the term agency as a different way of thinking about what's going on from a magical perspective that he takes. Like what matters is that... Yeah we can focus and create different. I different, guess I don't, uh, yeah, I guess levels. I don't know what he means exactly by agency. Does he mean sort of what I would think of as an in, intention? I mean, intention is a, a term that you 
find a lot in magical contexts. Right. There's the agency of Michael Levin at Tufts University, the biologist that's shaken up the academic world right now with his work on, he has a great piece at Aeon with Daniel Dennett, Cognition All the Way Down. Let me see, I'll, I'll pull this up for everybody, where they're talking about agency. And this, again, gets to this sort of bigger question about the evolutionary function of time loops that I, I like discussing with you, Eric, which is about directing the embryonic development or the regenerative development of an organism with bioelectric fields. And he is coming at a critique of Rupert Sheldrake's morphogenesis from a, a completely different angle where he's saying we don't need morphogenetic fields to explain this because we can see that the bioelectric imprint of an organism is what's governing the decisions that cells are making. And that's, that's sort of to the live not piece too, which is that, you know, when we think about natural selection we, and random mutation, you know, like what, are, like there's this notion that shows up in the conversation around evolution that there is a, you know, this, this part is deterministic and this part's not. And when you dive down, when you fine grain, the biological systems, you see that at every level they are, you know, running downhill thermodynamically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is what forms the basis for the kind of like internal structuring that we could call intelligence, you know, like trying to navigate what Richard Doyle calls the uh, search algorithm for max entropy production. So like this seems to me to get to a core question, is randomness subjective or objective? And it, would, it seems like based on what you're suggesting about self-consistent universe and the fundamental uncertainty that a time traveler must have in order to like create their own history that what we experience as free will is you know like a perceptual artifact of the limits of our ability to resolve a system deterministically but that that's fundamentally irreducible in some way that like no one of us as agents can know the whole thing that there are like fundamental horizons on the macro and micro of like what mm -hmm. we're capable of modeling as you know, probably from the piece that I sent you, and I haven't published about this, but I, I don't believe in knowledge at all. I mean, I think that what we call <laughs> knowledge is a, a pretense, you know, to sort of creating a map of, uh, to guide our actions. Uh, and I think historians and philosophers of science would agree with that. The trouble is that that news has really not trickled into physics very far, but, you know, it, it really influences how we think about observation and so on in a physics experiment, too. I mean, what what is it to observe something? It's kind of implicitly to know something. But if we're not knowing, if we're just sort of interpreting various sensations within a, a certain cultural model or code, and then that's constantly shifting, then what is knowledge? I, I don't I don't believe in in knowing. And I think that you know, it really makes it a lot easier to think about time travel and how to, and how a person could visit their own history and their own history would be a whole landscape of things that they didn't know about their past. And, and incidentally, you know, there's a wonderful story about this that I talk about at, uh, in my new book by Ted Chang, who is the author who wrote the story that Arrival is based on. He wrote this wonderful short story called uh, The Merchant and the Alchemist's Gate. And it's about time travel. And it's about character who discovers that time travel is not changing the past or undoing something tragic that happened in the past, but it's learning, it's gaining new knowledge that he didn't have before about that event, which is itself transformative and changes his life going forward from the point at which he time travels. And that's crucial, that, that distinction between, again, between changing the past, which is incoherent, and not both influencing acting in the past, but also learning something new about the past that you didn't know before. 
that changes your life going forward. And this is going to be the impetus for time travel, for our future time-faring descendants. It's not going to be changing history like some incoherent, you know, Terminator scenario, you know, where we're trying to assassinate some enemy or kill the baby Hitler or whatever. It's going to be learning something new, gaining new knowledge about the past, which makes for a better future in some way, and planting seeds in the past that will germinate into things going forward that will accelerate some process that we wouldn't have been able to to embark upon as quickly otherwise. The example, you know, and this is just a, it's just a sort of off the cuff example that I sometimes use, you know, imagine the initial technology for this will be quantum computers, I believe, because again, we can use them theoretically as communication devices between different times. So say you have a long lived quantum computer that is attached to 3D printers, massive 3D printers on the far side of the moon, okay? And say you have an astronomer in the 22nd century who detects a comet aimed at Earth, and it's going to hit in like a month. There's not enough time to build a rocket to go and destroy that comet. But he can send a command to the quantum computer 20 years in the past to print out a rocket to go and intercept that comet at the coordinates at which he's detected it. And and that would enable, you know, enable you to destroy that comet. I mean, that that's the kind of scenario that we're talking about with, I think, what is the, sort of the transitional technology that will lead ultimately to actual time travel. It's this sort of inter- informational time travel where you're using a quantum computer to send information into the past that enables you to better meet a challenge in your future. You see, the way I put it in the new book is, is planting seeds in the past for a better tomorrow. You actually um, give a, you give a great example that I loved in this when you're talking like taking this stuff down out of the abstract philosophical and into the like retail product, which is, yeah. which is the, the, my the pre, quantum, yeah, the, right. the precognitive airbag in yeah, your car. Exactly. I was like, yes, that's, yes, it's totally it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, right. I, the, the example in the book is my Tesla Model Q which I bought in 2029 on a trip through a wormhole, uh, has a precognitive airbag. It's a quantum computer controlled airbag, which deploys one second before an inevitable collision. And that this is collisions that can't be foreseen by the artificial intelligence that drives the car. This is a separate process. And it deploys one second in advance of, of a collision and, and thus you know, enhances that much more your chances for surviving that collision. And that's the kind of thing we're talking about, I think, with uh, that's going to be the the initial glimmers of precognitive technology will be things like that. Although, you know, honestly, it's all going to be kind of skewed by the fact that people are going to use it to make money on the stock market. And that's going to, that's going to throw things that could be a singularity all, all its own when, when, when quantum computers are used to, uh, you know, make buys on the, on the stock market. So I don't know who knows what's going to happen. (laughs) It's a murky, it's a murky future we're entering potentially, but that's, you know, that, that I think is, is coming. Something like that is coming. So uh, this is uh, this feels like a good time to pass the ball and double down on the invitation for people to chime in on a point that I'd like to make about the relationship between the sort of irreducible uncertainty, the experience of the time traveler in uh, their participation in a self-consistent time loop situation and the archetype of the fool in the tarot and like this notion that, you know, a lot of the exopolitical lore, oh, we just lost Stuart just in time for me to soft past this but um oh there there we go so a lot of the exopolitical lore does have this dimension of both 
the idea that these beings are some sort of evolutionary descendant of humankind, as well as the fact that they are researching us, as well as the fact that they are strangely clueless. And like the fact that like that you would expect if they're our own like hyper evolved descendants that they would be not so damn foolish about, you know, like that, that you, oh, well, how, why would a ship ever crash, you know, if they're mm -hmm. so smart? Yeah. So there's, it seems as though to plug into the conversation I had with Violet Luxton, like Sankofa about looking back to look forward, you know, that, that term that there's mm -hmm. something kind of inherently an irreducible foolishness. And this gets to a point that you make about Freud which is that he spends his entire life interpreting what I think you rightly identify as a precognitive dream as some sort of wish fulfillment thing. Mm -hmm. And yet you make the point that his fame in presenting a new theory of dreams that is that you believe is ultimately wrong, nonetheless vaults him to a fame that thus saves him and his family from the Holocaust. Right. You know, mm -hmm. and so there's this like it's related to this idea that when you ask people how they're going to vote in an election, they often give you the wrong, like they don't actually know themselves well enough to give you an answer because in the days before the election, if it turns out that every one of their family members is going to vote the other way, they will vote the other way so as not to misalign themselves with the support system upon which their daily lives depend. And so there are like all of these ways that evolutionary pressures impinge on us such that being quote unquote wrong is actually better for you than being right. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I know that this kind of foolishness is absolutely inherent to my own praxis of precognition in my daily life. And me just mm -hmm. sort of like following the impulse wherever it leads me, not knowing which cliff I'm about to walk off of. Uh, and mm -hmm. I would love to just hear from people if there are uh, personal life touch points for other people. I mean, obviously, like, Todd, you're making some some good points in the chat, and I would love I mean, not to like put you on the spot, Todd Guest, but or or Stuart or or any of these people, I would love to hear from folks what you know if that resonates with your own experiences of premonition or of this sort of looped causality. By the way, just to interject, I have not been watching the chat, and so uh, apologies for yeah. People should just chime. Oh yeah. Oh, and Jay makes a point that SRI did a remote viewing experiment with the Silver Futures Market. Mm -hmm. and yeah. you know made some good money on that so yeah but of course then you get yeah. into an evolutionary arms race where yeah. you know right. that's yeah and this is another reason i mean that that evolutionary arms race is i think an important probable answer to why precognition is just not our state of being that we are not like constantly seeing the future and looking into the future and there are consciousness is narrowed to a single window of time you know actually what use would that be really especially in a universe where everybody has that kind of ability. I think evolution very quickly decided that you really want precognition in that sense. You want maybe a kind of a short range responsiveness slightly, but that it's probably overall most adaptive for learning to be primarily constrained by what's happened before. And I, I, I suspect that that's, a, that's an important part of the answer. I'm glad you raised, I'm glad you mentioned that. And what you're saying about being wrong, ending up being right, I mean, this is key. Uh, honestly, I think this is sort of the key to what I call weird, the sort of ancient kind of Anglo-Saxon version of the fate. Um, good weird. Good weird. It's always, you're always wrong. You're always wrong. And, uh, and But your wrongness ultimately pays off 
slightly more, I think, than being right. And, and the, there's versions of this in a lot of philosophical systems. Hegel called it the cunning of reason. Jacques Lacan devoted a lot of ink to, you know, saying how that we are, it's, it's the non-duped, the, the people who are right about their own selves and their egos, who are actually most likely to, to err in their life choices. And it goes to the idea that I've emphasized again and again, that the unconscious is smarter than we are, you know? So we may feel like we're effing up, in our lives. But you know that, you know, I don't know if I can swear on this show, but Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay, well, that fuck up that you made that was so embarrassing back when you were 23 or whatever, you know, that may, in some oblique way, contribute to your success, you know, when you're 43, you know, and it's that kind of logic that you start to see when you start looking at yourself four dimensionally. So yeah, I love this idea of being wrong as a way of being right. Well, I mean, it's also sort of in keeping with the Buddhist notion of skillful means and, mm. you know, you're being drawn into a situation, you know, like, oh, you think you know why you're doing this, mm-hmm. but you really don't. And, and, you know, I can speak to that in my own life. You know, you get into these, a lot of the rhetoric in both non-dual philosophy and, and sort of more Western Christian Judaic theology is about, you know, that you can't disobey or that like, you know, when you feel like you are disobeying God, you're actually playing back into a situation where you realize like the Buddha is asked by his wife after he returns awakened, did you really have to leave? And he's like, well, in retrospect, no, but yes, that's part of the involutionary evolutionary sort of circuit is rejecting a good tip from the future that it turns out I was actually sort of playing into this whole learning process where looking back on it, I can say, oh, like it seemed like I was saying no, but really I was Mm -hmm. like to your earlier point, it sort of just defeats the whole purpose of trying to phrase this stuff in terms of the like inadequately simple free will determinism kind of concept. Mm -hmm. So wait, so Stuart, you got, you've got a question you're asking in chat. Is there any parallel between the observer effect in quantum and an observer effect in precognition does viewing the future collapse a wave function of possibilities. Yes. Occupied at the moment. Yes. Uh, does viewing the future collapse any kind of wave function of possibilities in the future, guessing not in a block universe scenario, but what fun is any conversation about temporality without some non-physicist invoking an ill-fitted quantum analogy? We insert manic laughter. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is, yes, this is, and honestly, I, I'm an outlier here. I mean, most people who write about precognition will say exactly that, that that's, or something like that, that outcomes in the future are open-ended. It's a big wave function and that we're somehow collapsing it or whatever. And the way Stuart phrased the question is kind of a, a quantum way of phrasing the same question that arises, has always arisen around prophecy. Okay. Does prophesying a thing lock it? into place or whatever. And the answer to this is, is complicated. First, I'll say I don't believe in wave functions. I think the retrocausal interpretation of quantum mechanics erases the wave function as anything other than an index of our, un- our uncertainty about how things are going to turn out. But the idea of the wave function as something real that is collapsed upon measurement goes away in a retrocausal framework. Because what there, there never was any wave function. It was simply, that's simply a way of expressing probabilities and, and our uncertainty. But in fact, our measurement or any interaction is what is retro determining 
the properties of that particle that you're measuring. So essentially, this is why there's no randomness either. I don't believe in randomness and retrocausalists don't believe in randomness either, because it's in fact, any interaction or measurement that is what we would describe as collapsing a wave function is in fact, sending that information back in time. It's actually an expression of true retrocausation. Causation goes in both directions and, and any measured outcome at any point in time is a product of causation going in two directions. Uh, now, so the idea of, well, you predict, I don't know, let's take a hypothetical example, you know, uh, uh, a plane crash maybe, and, you know, you have a dream that a plane is going to crash. And does that lock it in place? Well, it goes back to those same rules about the self-consistent universe that we talked about earlier and the sort of incoherence of the idea of a time traveler, you know, suddenly having the idea of changing their past somehow and, and how that there's no backstory for that. Well, there's no backstory for a future that is averted by say a warning in a precognitive dream. Okay. That's not going to happen. And this is why precognitive dreams are, A, so often ignored, okay, or misinterpreted. We seldom realize a dream is precognitive until the event has come to pass. And then, oh, we feel guilty because, oh, I should have known. I should have been able to warn someone. If you actually do the work of interpreting that dream, you may find that regret, that sense of self-doubt is included already in the dream. And this is a big theme of the new book is these misunderstandings about time and time travel really are important to get a handle on to understand how how precognition really works in our lives. So I think that instead of, you know, that this, this the standard answer that you'll get in a, in a typical ESP book is that uh, we precognize possible outcomes, but they're not set in stone. Okay. Um, my answer is that no, we precognize actual outcomes, but obliquely in a way that we will never understand usually until the event comes to pass. And this importantly is a, offers a new way of interpreting Freudian psychoanalysis. I mean, Freud offered all these reasons for why dreams distort our lives. And he believed that there was a sensor in our heads that kept us from knowing you know, forbidden desires and forbidden things. Well, I think he was wrong about that. I think he, that, that there's not a sensor. It's simply when information flows into the past in the brain of a freely willed agent, <laughs> you know, it's going to be oblique and distorted because as freely willed creatures, as creatures with agency, we could act to prevent an outcome that we foresee clearly that we don't want to have happen. You know, even the clearest premonitions, for instance, of disaster. I'll give an example, like one of the the best current modern cases of a, of a precognitive dreamer who routinely dreams about disasters that come true is Elizabeth Crone. She's a, a woman in, in Houston. She's a mother, grandmother in Houston who ever since being struck by lightning in the, in the, in the parking lot of her synagogue in 1988, her story is amazing. She has frequent dreams about disasters, especially air crashes or air disasters involving airplanes. And they come true, you know, like within a day or a couple of days generally. And 
even in her case, and she will, and she learned at a certain point to email herself these dreams. So she had a date and a timestamp on these, on these dreams. For instance, her, uh, her most famous case is that she precognized the miracle on the Hudson when the, the plane landed in the water on the Hudson and everyone was, you know, saved by the skillful piloting of, of Sully Sullenberger was the name of the pilot. Anyway, she had a dream about six hours before that and emailed herself this dream that uh, plane. And she even, she got, she got it down to two airlines. Uh, she thought it was, she knew it was an American carrier and it was either us airways or, or another uh, that it was landed on the water in New York. And all of the, the, the passengers were standing on the wings. That was the bizarre detail of it. Um, well, you know, six hours later, images go viral on the internet of, Passengers standing on the wings of this plane in the Hudson River while waiting to be rescued by boats. Um, well, even there, okay, that is so precise, but even there, okay, you know, down to like one of two airlines, but when is it going to happen? Is it really going to happen? I mean, you, she, she saw, has dreams that don't come true. You know, who are you going to call? You know, you know, there are so many factors that prevent premonitions from being acted upon in ways that. Yeah, so so you start when you start studying premonition from this point of view, you realize that you know you, you we're not getting premonition precognition is not some kind of radar for events in the future that we could then avoid. You know, it's something very different, and I think it's like that precognitive airbag. It's a preemptive working through process, a preemptive preparation process for upheavals. For the most part, those upheavals are very minor; they're not deaths and disaster and and things like 9-11 or, or the Titanic or plane crashes, for the most part, they're, you know, very, you know, minor turning points in our days. But uh, the point is we are being sort of pre-prepared for those, for those events. I think that's when you start to realize what, how precognition works and what it really is, then these questions about, you know, prophesying something and then it being unavoidable and all that, they kind of go away because that's not the way prophecy works that, you know, only in stories, only in myths, is that the way it works? Uh, and it's, 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 it's a lot more complicated and a lot more oblique and murky. Uh, Jay. Yeah. Okay. It's quick. I hope I, earlier um, it came up in the conversation I was mentioning in the, uh, in the chat, the, the SRI remote viewing experiments, which I remember you talked about Eric in time loops. And it got me thinking about how, you know, Ingo Swan, the famous remote viewer, he, they did these experiments, uh, Hal Putoff and Russell Targ, where they found, uh, in locked Faraday cages, right? Where in these safes, in fair, inside Faraday cages, where, uh, Ingo Swan was to be remote viewing some kind of like tableau, some kind of like some objects in, in that safe, they found like extra light that shouldn't have been there, right? When he was supposed to be remote viewing that environment, which kind of had like a lot of implications to it, right? And it got me thinking about how, you know, there's these anomalous accounts of people kind of watching themselves in the past or watching a loved one in the past. And, you know, it's been kind of thrown around a bit, like the idea of could someone be haunted by their own future self, or something like that, right? In this kind of like decentered way, where it's not just like, you know, you within the brain, like passing notes to yourself, but could be kind of more 
within the wider grid of the environment are kind of baked into the fabric of reality rather than notes within the brain or something like that. And so forgive me, but do you have a, do you have like a, no pun intended, like a position on that, on that kind of decenteredness? Yeah. My position is it's going to sound like reductive and kind of um, close-minded and it's not, but, but I, I think, I think it's very important to push the most reductive version of the hypothesis that I'm proposing because nobody else is as feels like my, my role in life is to push this reductively so that someone finally will test it, you know, because, because until someone tests this and falsifies it, then, you know, there's no way of answering these questions, honestly. So I'm going to give you my position statement on this is that though there's no extended, you know, grid, like you're talking about that this is all in the brain. It's all in the mind. And you don't need that larger grid to explain these phenomena now with an asterisk by it, because yes, there are certain reports here and there, certain findings here and there scattered around, which don't seem to fit, but there it fits so much of the data so well that it makes me distrust all of those isolated data points. And I don't know what to make of the, of the report you're talking about of the, of the added light in the Faraday cage. I mean, this was actually measured objectively or was this a subjective experience of Ingo Swan? I, I mean, if we were, if we're to believe put off and Targ's account and mind reach and other places. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. It was yeah. objective. Yeah. Eric, you might I, be, yeah, you I might be intentionally accidentally wrong in order that's the benefit of this idea. I am am so open to that idea, Michael. I mean, that's, that's honestly, I, you know, part of me hopes that I'm wrong about a lot of this stuff because yeah, I'm my hypothesis about this and, and I will add to it the hypothesis again, it's only a hypothesis, but that a lot of the data that is interpreted as remote viewing as telepathy as mediumship, a lot of this stuff fits very well within a misrecognized precognition framework. But that also yanks out from under us, you know, a lot of existential hopes that come along with that extended mind, extended consciousness idea, such as survival of bodily death. Hey, you know, uh, hey, I'd kind of like to survive bodily death. But I think it's important to push the reductive, you know, it's, it's a really important part of science. And like people who have a bee in their bonnet or whatever about materialism, you know, think, well, let's stop being reductive. Well, no, you have to be reductive. I mean, for, for science, for knowledge to progress, you've got to be reductive. That's part of the dialectic, you know, of scientific progress. And, and, and so I'm, I'm, I see it as my role to kind of push as reductively as possible, this hypothesis and, you know, see how, how far we can take it because without doing that, I mean, it's an important possible falsification of these extended mind, extended consciousness theories. You know, theories need to be falsified in the sense of trying to throw as many challenges at them to see if they hold up. And that's what I'm, that's essentially what I'm trying to do here. So yeah, my position, again, it's a tentative position, but it's a sort of a a deliberately chosen position is that this is all it is all in the brain, but the brain man is so much cooler than, than, <laughs> than people uh, tend to think. I mean, I really think I describe the brain as a tesseract. I think the brain is a kind of time machine, uh, literally. And if we start to understand that it, it opens up mind blowing possibilities uh, for understanding a lot of things in our lives and in culture more generally. I, I want to put a pin in that after Charlie gets 
his question in because uh, in the in the uh, unpublished stuff that you you sent me, there's a, a section on uh, top down causation and sort of mm-hmm. longer orbits of time binding. Mm-hmm. And I really want to yeah. make sure that we get to that because that kind of touches yeah. on everything we've talked about as far yeah. as teleology in a greater sense and UFOs and so on. But mm-hmm. before, uh, Charlie, thanks for being patient. So I might be a little out of sync, shitty internet, but basically, Eric, I'm, I'm curious. I saw that you thanked Adam Ellenboss in the comments of time loops, and I'm wondering what the content of y'all's conversations was. And oh, I, he's I, a good I, friend. He's a good friend of mine. And yeah, we, <laughs> I think we, 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 we had some friendly butting of heads <laughs> for context. He's an astrologer, and, uh, but he's very interested in ancient astrology, and he's unlike most of most astrologers, he's very interested in divination and and the idea of predicting the future with astrology. I get, apparently, I'm not at all aware of the astrology scene beyond what what I know from talking to Adam. But apparently, that's like sort of taboo even in astrology. I, I don't know why, but anyway, he's very interested in these questions of prediction and and divination. And and I will also say I've seen him at work, and he's he's phenomenal <laughs> at, at divining things using astrological charts. And I, I have my own ideas about how it works that are quite at odds with probably how he would understand it. But yeah, as I was sort of writing the book, I, you know, we had a lot of very fruitful conversations about these issues, about Jung, about, about archetypes, about things that we both, you know, fundamentally disagree on. But, but we, I think we both recognize that we're just kind of, we're just using different conceptual frameworks for possibly understanding the same thing and it's a matter ultimately of choice about how you how you conceptualize these issues so i don't know if that answers your question but yeah adam's awesome before i ask the question i want to ask does anybody else (laughs) want to uh, dip in here if not that's okay so is it okay for me to read just a short three sentence passage from this this piece eric Mm -hmm. oh yeah okay yeah Another language to help think about such a top-down relationship is homeostasis. Each level is a kind of homeostatic control on the level below it. Life is a control system on entropic physical processes. Mind is in turn a control system on life. And culture acts as a control system on the individual mind. It is retrocausation that allows these emergent levels to causally transcend the lower ones and act back upon them, meaning we could also view cultural or biological evolution as at least partly a matter of future forms acting as a kind of control system on past ones. Um, you, you relate this to the term syntropy and, mm-hmm. and this broader notion that, again, I like the way that Terrence McKenna put this. He says, physics asks us to accept one free miracle or to grant one free miracle, which mm-hmm. is the Big Bang, the, the inexplicable singularity at the beginning of time. And he's like, ah, and I, I would, I would rather ask for a f- one free miracle at the end of time, which is the, uh, Tehardian mm-hmm. Omega point, right? And so, yeah. you know, I mean, obviously these are the same thing if you're putting the entire universe on a single wave function or a single Mobius strip of, of self-knowledge. Or I don't know if you read, we talked about this when we had a book club on this book, but Greg Egan's novel Distress articulates this as a, uh, uh, anthrocosmology, which is this mm-hmm. this unifying theory that a lot of people are afraid to actually see published and and like send terrorists to try and prevent its publication because they're worried mm-hmm. it will it will close the historical process 
that like mm-hmm. that, that that will signify the bookend at the end of time and it turns out not to be the case in that book but that it's sort of this nested process of self-awareness and like retrospection and all these different levels and mm-hmm. so like you know when i think about top-down causation i'm thinking about it through the lens of complexity scientist jessica flack's work which is on social hierarchies as a form of collective computation about the environment and like Mm -hmm. status as being a way for a social group to minimize friction within the group in terms of like to optimize the entire group of organisms for collaboration. Mm -hmm. You know, as individuals, we may not like it for the same reason that like an individual mutation may not be appreciated at the level of the organism, but at Mm -hmm. every level it's, there's a, you know, a self-consistent kind of sense-making about it. And so when you talk about this, I, I fully appreciate the reductionist effort to sort of dissuade people from bringing in stuff like reincarnation. But I think that there's a secular way to go about this mm-hmm. that resembles Timothy Morton's hyperobjects, where he's he's arguing that from a position of Einsteinian relativity, which you also take in precognitive dream work, that you're already in somebody else's past. And so at the level of all of civilization, you know, the, the hyperobject that is civilization the now of civilization is a much uh, is to use uh Brian Eno's term. It's a, it's a long now and a big here, you know? Mm. And so the future state of that system from our tiny perspective is the present state of that system from its own perspective. And so he's arguing that the future of climate change, for example, is acting on us in the present due to our embeddedness in this secular materialistic transcendental hyper object. And yeah, I'm curious to hear your or anyone else's thoughts on that. Well, I, well, the next sort of trajectory in my, uh, in my work that I had to put on hold for the dream book is, is thinking about culture as a tesseract. Okay. So, so the first book was about the mind, the brain as a tesseract. But I believe culture is also a tesseract because if humans are transmitting information backward in time within their own lifespans, then cultural systems are doing the same thing via, via ultimately those, those human beings, those human experiencers. Now, the most obvious way this works is in creativity. Okay. Artists precognizing events later in their lives. Well, that itself becomes potentially a transmission vector of information from the future to the past. But I think really the place where this would be most relevant would be in an an initiatory tradition, especially one that utilizes psychedelics, entheogens or whatever, which are opening up, you know, precognitive experiences routinely for participants in which you would have a transmission of information, not simply from the initiator to the initiate initiand, but vice versa, where the shaman initiating a a pupil, you know, is learning from that pupil's experience on ayahuasca or whatever. And likewise, his own experience has been being transmitted backwards in his life and to his initiator in the past and so on. So theoretically, you could have a retrograde transmission of information across generations. Uh, but the same thing would happen with just parents and children. You know, I mean, any, any kind of unequal age relationship is potentially a vector of retrograde information transmission through history. Now, the challenge is finding, finding examples of this that, that, <laughs> that, that, are, not, that are not totally, totally off 
the wall speculative, but I've got a few favorites and I'll, I'll just share them with you. Just understanding that I have no proof of this, but okay. There's a famous example of the Dogon, you know, Marcel Griot visits the Dogon and discovers that they somehow know about that Sirius is a double star system. Okay. And this has prompted, you know, so much new age, you know, speculation, but what if the Dogon learned about the double star system of Sirius from Marcel Griot. I mean, he was had he was interested in astronomy. I mean, he was and he was uh, sharing this uh, with you know the the elders or whatever of of this group. What if this is this little fact of this double star system of Sirius is something that they learned from Marcel Griot and it was transmitted back through the generations within that you know their initiatory system. You know, what if? The culture contact provides lots of potential examples of this. Like you have the Aztecs who dreamed of Cortez beforehand, and he he was, you know, thought to be, I guess, Quetzalcoatl. You had Captain Cook, you know, who was a personification of Lono in, in Hawaiian islands. Are these cases where where the other, you know, the cultural other was, and this encounter, this very traumatic encounter with uh, another culture was transmitted back through the generations within the culture and shaping their mythology in the past. I'm just throwing, you know, obviously I cannot even begin to prove such an idea, but these are the kinds of things we just start asking because if well, that's, oh, if, I mean, if this is, if, if the model is correct, you know, that on an individual level, well, then this is a natural extrapolation from it. Yeah, so so in a recent episode of Weird Studies, J.F. Martel and Phil Ford uh, make a kind of rhyming point about the prophecy of the New Jerusalem. You know, the shining city on the hill, everything is illuminated. This, you know, this turns up again and again and again in these in these sort of eschatological religious mm-hmm. narratives. And they're like, go to Times Square. You know, like we're here. Mm-hmm. You know, this is right. this is what like <laughs> this is it. Right. We're in the New Jerusalem now. Well, and, here's yeah. okay. Let can I share? I sorry to interrupt, but can I share my favorite example of this that I just remembered? And it and it actually goes back to the question about Adam Ellenbos because this is something that he shared with me. You know, Adam wrote his first book about his ayahuasca experiences, and he went to South America on numerous occasions and uh, is sort of an expert on on this. But he shared with me a book when we were talking about this possibility, uh, I think I was raising to him the idea of retrograde cultural transmission. And like, he thought, well, you'd have to look at this book. He gets out this book and I forget the title of the book. I have it around here somewhere, but it's paintings by a shaman. And a lot of these paintings show flying saucers and cities floating in the air. And supposedly in this book, and unfortunately, I'm, you know, it's hard to tell whether this claim is accurate, but uh, supposedly these images crop up in the art of these, uh, of these Indians, you know, going back, you know, decades or centuries, they're iconographic elements that, that, that are longstanding in this tradition. And so like the immediate thought is, well, you know, wow, did, did these Indians learn about flying saucers i mean okay the the obvious archetypal explanation for this is like okay well this is an archetype or these indians have been have been interacting with flying saucers you know throughout their history but the other possibility is wait did they learn about flying saucers from terence mckenna or from all of the ayahuasca tourists going down to south america now and bringing this cultural meme uh with them 
And has it been transmitted through the, this initiatory tradition into the past, you know, to inform this iconographic tradition? You know, is the, is the flying saucer something that was, that was introduced to, to, to this culture by Terrence McKenna in 1970 or whatever? And went back That's like the time. worst, most pernicious form of, <laughs> of anthropological, of, of, of cultural pollution. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And, and, and I hasten to add, it's like, there's a sort of a danger there. There's always this, you know, idea that, oh, we can't, the, the, the other can't, think of these things by themselves and you know we're the ones who have to introduce it and i would hasten to add that the same thing would go in reverse that the same thing would would happen reciprocally that 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 there ought to be aspects of our own culture that are equally shaped by our own encounters with the other the cultural other so i don't i don't want to you know well okay i put that out there right there but I don't know if you've written about this, but I would not surprise me that you have given the frequency with which you, you quote Philip K. Dick, but the three stigmata of Palmer Eldritch about a mm-hmm. spacefaring billionaire yeah. who goes, who returns to infect everyone and like duplicate himself into them. seems like it's, it's basically Philip K. Dick talking about precognizing all of the spacefaring billionaires who uh, yeah. have like gone back in time to infect him so that he writes this book. Another fictional example of this idea is Arthur C. Clarke's uh, Childhood's End, because they're the overlords. They look just like devils. And it turns out that, well, we've essentially our race or our civilization has been precognizing uh, their arrival, you know, all these centuries uh, through this, you know, sort of archetype of the devil or demon. Todd and then James. Thanks, Michael. Um Gosh, yeah. So I've been listening this whole time and, and nodding my head a lot, shaking my head a lot, because I, I, I just so agree and recognize as well as disagree in so many things. But um, just real quick, I um, I just got this yesterday, so um, you know, I'm I'm, I'm a little behind uh, the lesson here, but um, I've been regularly um, experiencing precog, really clear, interesting precog dreams on my life, and I really resonated with with how you were describing how most people are with it you know for me it was uh you know it's like wow this is this is crazy in my continual reinterpretations and then you know but never really as michael knows i've known michael i've got a lot of learning curves under my belt and this is just one that i've been putting off for a long time and so uh when this came across my radar recently um, i got a little excited because i thought you know i think i I i'll probably do well to dig into this one right now because because I'm still, you know, living with those experiences and, and mm-hmm. continually. So, um, so anyway, all that said, I'm also, um, I'm, I'm not an academic. I'm not a scientist. I'm not an author. Um, I'm not really into the entheogens anymore since I was a teenager, you know, but, and I, and I'm really I'm developing my own future fossils ethic in the arts, you know, uh, based on following this, this group and the themes. So um, all that said, my, my, Real interest and curiosity about all this, aside from my own personal life, is I'm very much an advocate of anybody who's into the nature of consciousness and the states and causality and just all these, you know, various transpersonal fields of consciousness. I'm always very interested in how it applies in the fields where these types of states and stages are most regularly vividly occurring, which 
I've found is in um, what's called the sacred arts of dying or end of life spirituality, which is is really a broader umbrella for aging, grief, uh, illness, suffering, caregiving, especially um, caregivers healing themselves, but being becoming intimately familiar with those altered states that, you know, a lot of times you work with people in comas mm-hmm. and some of my mentors and teachers, you know, have, have methods of communication of with people in coma and dementia type states that is just profound and, and world work, you know, it really, and the reason why it's world work. And, and I, and I, and I get a lot of this from my long term kind of association with the uh, yes, Deepak Chopra's notion of a wizard living backwards in life. You know, that's, that, that's my life to a T because I've found myself finding the most illuminative lens on the human experiences, looking kind of backwards through development and story from the end to the beginning, you want to understand childhood development, go hang around with dying people and, and hear their stories and learn how to listen and inquire deeply, very deeply and, and become skillful there. And now, oh, yeah, now you're going to see the leverage points of how we avoid tyranny, how we avoid boys, especially becoming, you know. And so to bring back around, though, so the, the role of any sort of experiments or work or just direct experience of the broad range of states and stages and, and meditative applications and, and psychological applications and dreaming, especially because dreaming becomes more vivid than, than I think most people realize in the end of life work because mm-hmm. of our deepening backwards journey that we're forced to be taking, mm-hmm. you know, and there's the notion that uh, in, in the art of dying work that the soul attended to responds a thousand fold. And, and I, in my experience, that's no fucking exaggeration, you know, and, and there's people who have avoided that it's just cultural, social reasons, mostly for, you know, all our lives. But then, then all of a sudden start finding some sort of effective practice, even dream journaling and talking about dreams will just start. And this, this, this work that you're doing, Eric, with the precognitive stuff, I just, I think, man, it has really profound, um, it's a field you know, a practice mm-hmm. and that is, you know, like, like the, like, like the kids said, you know, the harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few because everyone avoids it because you're asking mm-hmm. them to look at the sun. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you don't and you lean into it, you can't just dive into it unless you're some sort of, you know, weirdo like me, but, but at least lean into looking at the sun and we're going to have more data points, more, you know, it's, it's going to become more vibrant and alive. And, and I think, in that we will also, and then getting into the more exo future remote, cause that's a whole nother conversation. I think, you know, <laughs> when it comes to this, but, but just in the, nar- in the narrower conversation, I'm just asking about the, you know, the art of dying component and the implications there. And I think that's, that's about all I got for now. So, yeah. Well, the, one of the ironies of studying precognition and precognitive dream work and what I call precognitive life work is that it's real? This is people imagine. Oh, this is about the future. Oh, I'm gonna like you know make it big on the stock market, or I'm gonna develop some sort of superpower. I'm gonna be able to you know be the Superman navigating the future. No, it's all about the past. This is all about re-looking at your life, and it's all about your biography. Now, I compare it to archaeology or, or paleontology. In fact, I think I call it a paleontology in the book. It's really about paleontology of your life and having the mind blowing, these mind blowing experiences where you are excavating your past and discovering things about your past that totally would have slipped under your radar before and that change everything. 
about your understanding of yourself, your biography. So, so yeah, I mean, what you're saying is really, I think, resonant. I think, you know, I, uh, so I'm eager to, I, I hope you like the book and, and let, let me know, reach out to me uh, if you have um, thoughts, um, because what you're saying, I think, is, is really key. Folks? That does tend to come across like a fart in church, so... I Okay, well, thanks, Charlie. Thanks for, for joining us. So there's this other piece, hairpinning back. Thank you, Todd. I will let that one uh, simmer. Again, like thinking back about like the nestedness of all of these things. You know, if you're going to challenge free will and determinism as useless categories, and we're talking about selection pressure and or uncertainty operating at every level, and this notion of syntropy and, and telos, you know, syntropy is that which is drawing things together into, you know, a meta individual or something like, you know, the advent of multicellularity, the advent of sociality, these major evolutionary transitions. You know, if we're going to talk about childhood's end, if we're going to talk about the spiral and the the mechanisms by which we can get sort of reverse cultural or retrograde cultural transmission, it's worth bringing up uh, Jonathan Zapp's book, Crossing the Event Horizon, which is about the singularity archetype. And he's looking at this in a, a Jungian sense, he's proposing the singularity itself as a Jungian archetype. But if we see it as the sort of emergent archetype of a time loop, then that's yet another characteristic of the consistent reportage across all of these different UFO experiencers that the beings they encounter are not individuals in the sort of simplistic modern way that we understand them, but are networked or mind linked in some way and mm -hmm. are therefore only the distal, like a great example of this actually is the remake of the day the earth stood still, you know, where Keanu Reeves character is the sort of just the tip of the tentacle of this alien intelligence that basically sleeves into a human body and that, again, that that's sort of consistent with the position of Vedanta about like avatarism and the notion that, mm -hmm. that each of us is an, an emanation of a, uh, a transcendental being. So I don't know. Again, I'm just, that's just me sort of riffing on how it seems like your model accommodates for an even broader and, and more parsimonious embrace of all of these different pillars of various spiritual traditions in a way that makes them uh, at least hypothetically open to some kind of empirical confirmation or exploration. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I just felt like getting that out. Again, I mean, I'm, what I'm trying to offer is things that are testable, you know, that's not to say that that's all there is. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that, you know, as the, I'm trying to sort of bring an idea into the world and let, you'd let it be tested, you know, and help and use it as a test of other rival ideas. Yeah. Uh, well, I, as far as the, the, the UFO stuff, I'll say, I, although I keep coming back to it, the idea that UFOs are from our future or whatever, I'm not totally committed to that interpretation. I don't think any, any one interpretation, no, no, none of the interpretations totally fit, but I think it, to me, it's the kind of the most exciting and most, counterintuitive, I think for most people idea. And so I think it's important to kind of 
push it. But, you know, like you're, you're talking about how the, the behavior of reported aliens or occupants of these craft. Another detail, which you'd mentioned earlier, is that they crash so often, you know, or at least during a certain period, they crashed so often. One of the interesting points that Jacques Vallée makes, and he makes it in his new book, especially, uh, uh, and I had an opportunity to spent some time with him a couple of years ago and he he was he was constantly reminding me of this idea that you know don't think that these things aren't necessarily disposable that they are they're not disposable i mean he he there, there's something about many of these encounters which which really seems like these objects and and their occupants are expendable disposable uh and they're meant to crash you know and i think that's it's an important perspective to keep in mind <laughs> wherever they're sent from and that that certainly seems to be the case of the of the old crashes in the desert back in the in the 40s space monkeys you are not a unique snowflake yeah <laughs> jay you got your hand up nobody else does so feel free okay i mean unless anybody else has anything but like along the lines of the 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 you know the extraterrestrial hypothesis we of course also have like the interdimensional or interdimensional hypothesis. Do you think that there's any, there's often the, the working possibility that people talk about um, some of these as being us from the future, that, that kind of time travel hypothesis, but also of course that like, like maybe they don't need FTL faster than light drives. If they're coming from like just another universe, do you think that there's a possibility that rather than like the block universe, that there could be blocks universes like, or that there could some be, be some kind of like, uh, you know, technical advantage to being able to kind of like explore in an interdimensional framework that might have like two kind of space time ecosystems running in parallel or something like that. Well, this is, you know, it's, it's a cool idea. And I think there are so many people running around, theorizing about that idea that I think it's my role to, again, be reductive and try to push the opposite. And so I'm not a fan of like multiverse. I'm not a fan of the many worlds interpretation in quantum physics, which is kind of like a quantum version of what you're arguing. You know, sure. Are there multiple block universes? Yeah, why not? But how would we know, you know? And I think it's important to try and push the explanation within a single universe, a single timeline and see how that shakes out. So that's, that I feel like is my role in all this. And so what you're suggesting may be, and I think a lot of people, probably 90% of, of ufologists would like, like that idea. I mean, you know, the, the idea that, that UFOs are from a, another dimension, whatever that exactly means is very appealing, but I guess I'm most interested in pinning it down to, you know, this timeline, this dimension, future, maybe crypto terrestrial. That's another very good hypothesis. I just finished Jacques Vallée's most recent book uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, I quite liked it, actually. And, and one of the things that really struck me, you know, coincidentally, at the same time, I, I've i been reading and watching the old Jacques Cousteau specials with my daughter, you know, who's really into Jacques Cousteau. <laughs> and there's something really weirdly similar between a lot of these ships that landed or crashed in the desert in the 1940s and Jacques Cousteau's like diving saucer, which he actually based on flying saucers, oddly enough, he designed it based on flying saucers in the 1950s. But there's something weirdly similar about these, these craft that were 
crashing and, and or or just landing and interacting with people in the 1940s and 50s and it opens up strange possibilities and also something about their you know they're always ejecting material which actually is a lot like submarines they're these it could be ballast you know it's like are these are these ships like Cousteau's diving saucer in reverse? Are these aquatic beings that are somehow sending these airships, you know, these, these small kind of two, three man, you know, airships that don't really have much in the way of propulsion or anything like that. And they're kind of just wind up, you know, landing or crashing or whatever. Uh, and then, you know, having, you know, shooting metal out as ballast uh, the same way a submarine does. I don't know. There's just something weirdly coincidental or archetypal or synchronistic <laughs> i don't know what it is uh you know i don't know where i'm going with that observation but yeah there's so many possibilities and yeah and i'm not committed to the time travel one but i since time is kind of my expertise i'm sort of see it as my job to kind of push that idea as much as possible but there are definitely other other possibilities Seems like we could apply a machine learning algorithm to all of this to at least like text modeling, you know, like topic modeling mm-hmm. in large text corpora that you can, you, you know, you can identify sort of these consistent patterns. Well, I'm sure that that's like at the back of Jacques Vallée's mind when, I mean, he's been you know creating these databases from the start. Sorry, I was interrupting someone who was talking, I think. Oh, we had an unmuted new new person on the call. Hi, Dr. Blue. Episode 124, folks. Dr. Blue's great. Actually, some of the stories that he tells in that episode are kind of relevant to this conversation in as much as he was using uh, LSD and hypnosis to explore people's UFO encounters and stuff. So anyway, uh, yeah, I don't know if you want to chime in here. We're, we're kind of getting to a point where we ought to wrap it up, I think. But one more time, if folks have any thoughts, yeah. Sherelle, please. Hi. One thing that I always have difficulty in is just developing a mental model, especially for like the time paradox, whatever. I I think it's really hard. So it was mentioned really early in the beginning. It was probably my first ideation of this was uh, Slaughterhouse Five. You Mm -hmm. know, the main character imagines that that we are all just this long, continuous, stretched out thing at one end, you've got the baby all the other end, and there's no interruption. And and so when, Michael, you mentioned time worms, that was the first thing that I thought of. Hmm. So there's an example of a model, but a yeah. lot of times like interdimensional or time travel, I mean, I, I find it very difficult to create those models. So Eric, it's your job to do no. that and to write about it and supposedly present something that can be tested and... I was wondering, and the, the other dummy part of me is like, is there any movie that I can think of that just seems to really explain time, that really just gets at that idea of time travel? And so that it, it made me think of it like, speaking of these ideas being informed from outside, do you have any book or movie that just really seem to create a shortcut for you, like shorthand for like, yes, that is the model that I'm trying to trying to like push or yeah well definitely arrival i mean more than anything else gets it right as far as precognition and hints you know of the long self and and so on the ideas that i'm talking about so if you haven't seen arrival that's the, the, the number one and uh and as i was and it came out like right as i was writing time loops i was just like holy cow this is this is it and and it's a super important movie by the way for precogs uh, people precogs i work with 
They see this movie and go, yes, this movie gets it. And the movie helps them feel better about their experiences and their lifelong experiences of precognizing things and not recognizing it until after the fact and so on. So I definitely recommend that movie. And interestingly, it's very similar. It has a lot of, I don't know if this is a function of Ted Chang, who wrote the original story that was based on, or the filmmakers who adapted it, but there are similarities between it and Slaughterhouse-Five because like the aliens themselves in Slaughterhouse-Five, they're described as these big toilet plungers, you know, but it's like, it's not all that different from, from the aliens as they appear in, in Arrival. And there are, a lot, there are points of similarity between these, these stories. So, so yeah, and, and Slaughterhouse-Five is another great example. And incidentally, uh, Kurt Vonnegut himself was a precog. He had a very, I talk about uh, a very powerful precognitive experience, very powerful and life altering precognitive experience um, that he had. Uh, um, uh, I talk about that in time loops. So yeah, that, that would be the number one movie touchstone that I think I would recommend to people. Well, interestingly, I mean, that it seems to be the most sensitive portrayal of, of alien contact that I've ever yeah. seen in a yep. film. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's a wonder, it's just a wonderful film and I've watched it again and again and again. I just, I just love it. And it's, it's so, so many good things about it, including that uh, the, yeah, it's about the military, you know, but in, in this case, it's not, you know, just this big space war scenario and it's, it's very sensitive and it gets time and precognition, right? It's, it's so many good things about that movie. Um, so yeah, I can't recommend it highly enough. And actually another, another touchstone would be it's based on a short story by Ted Chang. That's in his first collection of short stories um, called uh, stories of your life. Okay. The story it's uh, that the movie's based on is called a story of your life. Um, but his second collection that came out just uh, last year called exhalation has a couple of other really 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 good stories in it and i actually have a whole chapter in my new book about ted chang's dealing with the questions of time and time travel uh, in his writings because he's he's like he's he gets it and he has these short stories that are these beautiful pure little thought experiments about time and free will and time travel and so on and i mentioned earlier uh, in our conversation, I mentioned his story, The Merchant and the Alchemist's Gate. That's another one that I would highly recommend. And that's in his new collection called Exhalation. And, you know, my thought experiment about the precognitive airbag, it's kind of inspired by a story in another story, also in the same collection by Chang, called uh, What's Expected of Us. And it's a, it's a just like a, like a two-page short story about this little toy that anticipates. It's a little light that goes on a second before you press the button and you can't defeat it no matter how hard you try. And it drives a certain number of players crazy. <laughs> so, so his writings are really, really wonderful. Dr. Blue, you're here. And, uh, I uh, just want to yeah. make a comment on, on that research that I did. I was hired by Dr. Peter Phillips, who was a nuclear physicist who founded the McDonnell Douglas Institute for Psychic Studies at Washington University in St. Louis. And we uh, we rounded up about a dozen people who claimed they had been abducted by UFOs. And my job as a recent PhD in clinical hypnosis was to hypnotize them and take them back to their abduction vehicle so they could sketch out the instrument panel of the spaceship. So we did that, and uh, 
my experience with these individuals was that about a quarter of them had stories which made a lot of sense. They had detailed remembrances of the instrument panels. And I don't know what Dr. Phillips did with them, if he ever communicated to to NASA or other people who actually built spaceships. Um, But um, about a quarter of them were pretty crazy and psychotic. And the other half were somewhere in between. They had were anxious and wanted a lot of attention. And it seemed like they were getting it through these recollections of being abducted. But there was a good 25, 30% of them that were stable people who had regular lives, who were not crazy and um, had distinct memories of taking a free flight on a spaceship. So there you go. Yeah, it's fascinating. And who knows what to what to do with all of it. Yeah. Although the, the whole right. point of the um, trying to please your therapist comes up in your conversation yeah. of, of Jung and that whole yeah. notion of like, you might be like bullshitting yourself and your therapist in order to get the attention. And that's like a totally justifiable kind of circumstance. And you might not, right. and you might not know you're doing it. I mean, that's, you know, the, people don't consciously try to necessarily try to please their therapist, but you know, unconsciously they're producing dreams that fulfill the expectations of their, yeah. of their therapists. And more yeah. importantly, they're pre- that's, that's why when you hypnotize people for lawyers or the police, try to remember the details of a crime the first thing I tell them is don't tell me anything about what happened because I don't want to yeah. have any clues or cues mm-hmm. to direct them in, in the direction that the sponsor wants me to find. But I did solve several murders for the FBI and Albuquerque police, keeping those things in mind. So uh, memories are there sometimes that people can't remember. And with clinical medical hypnosis, they can remember things. I would add that so are premories. A hypnotic trance is a highly precognogenic state. And this is what people don't realize in hypnotic trance. A lot of what people are producing, I think a lot of the time is precognizing stimuli that they will encounter later. And this model really puts a monkey wrench in things like past life regression and the kind of abduction experience. You know, how many of these people might be in fact in trance producing a precognitive experience of something they're going to read in a book later or something they're going to see in a movie later and that it raises the possibility of of the abduction phenomenon like so many other religious phenomena or quasi-religious phenomena being a kind of echo chamber of people being precognitive again it's misrecognized precognition that's you know being misinterpreted or reinterpreted as something from the past so and that's just it's all hypothetical, but I think it's a hypothesis that needs to be tested to sort of rule out certain possibilities. Blue, I had you to may, mute you. Sorry, you, you you're may getting remember feedback. one incident where uh, a whole flight to Hawaii had the roof peel off and a passenger got sucked out of the plane and died. That was about 15 years ago. Well, I had a patient who was a nurse who was supposed to be on that flight, and she was supposed to be on the seat next to the one where the patient got sucked out. And she had a dream about that the night before the flight canceled her flight. That's amazing. Do you have a written account of this or is this something? Uh, no, but I could, I could write it down for you if you want. Oh my God, that'd be fantastic. I would I would love to hear this in detail. Okay. If you could the email The second part of the story is she was very depressed and didn't respond to traditional therapy, cognitive therapy or hypnotherapy 
And so I did a gruff breathing session with her hyperventilation breathing, which changes the carbon dioxide level in your brain and gets cellular mm-hmm. memories. She started talking in German and describing places in Germany that were concentration camps. And she had no family who was in the Holocaust. She didn't speak German. And we looked up these places and they were real places. So, Mm -hmm. Well, that's one of those things that like, I think you make a really good point, Eric, about the tracer in these Mm -hmm. experiences. I think we talked about this when I had you on for one episode 117, which is that like, I was haunted for years by this sort of apparition of this, this, like, I I took it to be like a Jungian anima, like a witch, Mm -hmm. uh, like a black Madonna type figure. And as soon as a friend recommended, I start asking about this figure. It gave me personal details that I then went online and looked up and was like, right. oh, my God, it's perfectly confirmed this thing. Mm-hmm. But like we keep making this mistake and assuming that mm-hmm. we're validating some sort of external right. phenomenon when what, in fact, we're doing is gaining information that then is leaking backwards through time, which gets to the whole point about. And I know we talked about this and this seems like a great place to sort of wrap this conversation which is the fact that your work provides a testable hypothesis for debunking ESP. And as like, you just don't provide validation to the people involved in the study. There's like an additional, there's an orthogonal axis that you have to start blinding all of this stuff in order to really tease these things apart. So to the point of like getting back to the, the citizen science project that you're trying to like bootstrap here with this book, I'd love to pass the ball for you to touch down and talk a little bit about these sort of open science protocols, you know, like Jacques Vallée talks about the invisible college. I'm not sure if that's the book you were referencing just a moment ago, but I would love to hear and and leave everybody on this call with a sense for how we all collectively, both here and everyone else reading and thinking about this stuff may actually start formalizing this stuff into a large sort of citizen science initiative, because that's where things get really exciting for me. Yeah. um, So I I sort of, you're referring to the fact that I'm kind of, I'm viewing this new book as an invitation to citizen science, which is the only way we're going to make progress on this. I'm trying to, I think you described it in one of your emails as an end run. And I like that. I'm I'm trying to make an end run around the, the standard practice of, people who write about this stuff, people who write about parapsychology and trying to provide some proof, some proof that'll finally convince a skeptic, which is never going to happen. It's just never going to happen. And so much ink is wasted as far as I'm concerned, writing, you know, these little articles for like some little parapsychology journal, you know, I'm a member of those societies, but I'm sorry, nobody reads those articles except for people who are already believers in this stuff. And I think that's a waste of time. You know, I think the important thing to do is to get more and more people to experience this in their own lives, to make this a part of their daily practice. And really, it just means keeping a dream. You know, a lot of people keep dream journals anyway, but keeping a dream journal with an eye to this. And so I provide some steps that you need to take. It's very simple. I mean, the precognitive dream work is the simplest thing in the world. You just have to go back to your dream records, record all your dreams, and then go back to those records over the next couple of days at night, at the end of the day, just kind of re- revisiting your dreams in light of things that happened in that interim. And when people start realizing, oh, wait, I, I'm having precognitive dreams. This is a real thing. That will kind of, I hope, change the conversation. So it's like, it's not citizen science in the sense that I'm trying to amass like a data set. You know, I would have, if I were trying to do that, I would have set up a website. Well, here's, here's where you, you know, submit your dream and all that. 
I'm, I don't have the capabilities of doing that. And I don't think that's, you know, that's been done. That's done by everybody else. But there are those sites out there by other authors, you know, they'll have their book on precognition or ESP and here's the website and here's our discussion forum and you can, you know, submit your thing. You know, that's, I, I don't, I'm not convinced that's going to, you know, that's going to be the lead to the tipping point. I think the tipping point is going to be more and more people, more and more smart, rational people on social media, sharing their stories and no longer accepting the kind of lame pushback from skeptics over these topics. And I think we've seen how this can happen. We've seen it with UFOs, right? Over the last five years, we've seen a, a change in the discourse. Whatever you think of the information that's come out, how whether or not you completely trust it or not, I, I don't. But at least a, there's been a change in the discourse and it's no longer acceptable to simply ridicule the topic. And that's that's what I'm trying to get to with precognitive dreaming because actual scientists dream scientists still just dismiss and ridicule, ridicule the topic. And if we can get to a point where enough people are going, no, 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 you can't, no, no, that's not fair. You cannot do that. You cannot just ridicule this topic that, that in fact, everybody is experiencing, you know, and eventually you'll get, you'll have some young postdoc psychologist who's had precognitive dreams of her own and starts a research program and makes it legitimate. I think for one thing, the actual paradigm shift has got to start in physics. It can't start in psychology because it has to be acceptable in physics to talk about this. And then after physics in biology to start talking about it, then it will be acceptable to psychologists because psychologists are so afraid of seeming unscientific um, that they need that leadership from these other fields. So I think it's, you know, but I think what we're seeing right now with quantum computing and are going to see, I think, over the next decade, two decades with quantum computing, I think that's going to make this process inevitable of, of a kind of change in consciousness that, hey, it's no longer ridiculous at all to talk about retrocausal dimensions of our experience and things like precognitive dreams and so on. So, Well, I won't die happy until the Santa Fe Institute is studying the stochastic thermodynamics and entropy production of time loops. So well, I won't either. Yeah, so here's here's to hoping that we can achieve critical cultural saturation. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, Eric, this has been awesome. I want to yeah. thank you for taking an extra long time to chat with us today and uh, for writing so many good books and essays and uh, articles and podcast appearances and, and all this stuff to get this stuff out there to get people thinking about it. I really appreciate it. And I want to give, let everybody unmute and give the guy a round of applause. Thank you. Well, thanks for the great questions and the conversation. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Thank Thank you. (laughs) And uh, if you're listening to this uh, sometime in the future, I guess you, Awesome. Thanks, everybody. This will be up on the podcast feed in a couple of weeks if you want to share it with your friends. And Eric, I'll reach out to you by email and, and okay. see if there are any affordances for us to put our heads together about some of this. this, this specifically, the evolution and creativity stuff seems like mm-hmm. I, I'd love to wrap with you about yeah, that. Absolutely. Cool. Take care, everybody. Okay. Take care. Thanks again for listening. Future Fossils is an independent, entirely listener supported program. If you believe in the work that I'm doing and you want to help see it thrive into the unimaginable future, then avail yourself of all of the backstage goodies at patreon.com 
slash Michael Garfield. Reach out to me personally at Michael Garfield on Twitter or Instagram and have a wonderful eon. Mm-hmm.